When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 402 of Sustainable Minimalists, a show about intentional and eco-friendly minimalist living. On today's show, we're discussing how exactly to live a life that's rich in experiential wealth. Throughout our lives, we are taught, thank you capitalism, to measure our wealth in currency, in our finances, in the final number in our bank account. But when people reach the end of their lives, almost no one is talking about money. No one's talking about stuff. No one is lamenting that they never got the iPhone 15. The number one regret of the dying doesn't have anything to do with money. It has everything to do with the experiences they wish they had but didn't. Our experiences are the true wealth of our lives. So why then do so many of us not have real plans to seek them out and invest in them? Why on earth are we postponing our goals to someday, which really means we're just putting them off until it's too late? Here to help me round out Experiences Week are Bridget Hilton and Joe Huff. Congratulations, Bridget and Joe. You have a new book out now, just released. It's titled Experiential Billionaire, Build a Life Rich and Experiences, and die with no regrets. I'm so hoping you're here today to help tell us, myself included, how we can live a life that's rich in experiences despite the daily grind. Bridget, we'll start with you. Why did you decide to write a book all about experiential wealth? Why we decided to write the book is because we thought that it was the greatest value that we had in our life that we could give to the world was teaching people how to build a life rich in experiences. We believe that real wealth is having a life that's filled with meaningful experiences, and that's something that everybody knows, even if they don't realize it. But towards the end of their lives, it becomes very obvious to people that just monetary wealth or just physical objects weren't what was important in their lives. And what they really remember was like the deep, meaningful experiences. And I, I could add a little to that. The book that we wrote isn't the book we started writing. So in a comic twist of events, we wound up having these just pretty wildly experiential lives that we would have never predicted. Our young selves would have never predicted us being able to do these things. And as we started to realize that 
the, you know, our experiences are the real wealth of our lives earlier than I think a lot of people realize it because all of the studies and surveys show that people realize that way too late for the end of their life when they're going to have major regret. We started writing this book on all the science and research and tools, but it became just so much more than that. And it just became like a really fun, compelling story told through like real world experiences that I think will really engage people and, and motivate people to find and rediscover their dreams. You both touched on the same point essentially there, which is as human beings, as we get older, we're not saying, oh, I wish I amassed more financial wealth. That's not what people are saying, by and large. Three out of four people on their deathbeds, I read in your book, said that they regret not living the way they wanted to live. How powerful is that? But yet, and yet, right? Our society does define wealth by the number in your bank account. Wealth is so often discussed in terms of finances. And so you already mentioned how you defined wealth, but how did you get there? And Joe, this question will start with you. How did you get to the place in which you were able to say, hold up, what society has taught me from birth is a rich life. That's not working for me. So I'm going to do things differently. How did you get there? And what did it take to radically go off the beaten path, figuratively and literally, I suppose? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I had a really early life experience where when I was 18, my father suddenly wound up needing a heart transplant and he had been otherwise seemingly healthy. So this was a really sudden event. And that that really shook me. That was right when I was 18 years old. And it was a two-month period where he, where he was on uh, life support. And we're pacing the halls in this hospital going, this is crazy. Like he, he put off his whole life for this future now that he might not have. And that gave me this urgency to go out and do things. It gave me this really powerful gift of urgency. Um, so I started trying to go out and do things in my life that I knew would be meaningful to me before I had money. So that wasn't even an option um, then. But of course, we all need money. So we're all trained that if we just have more money, we'll be happy. But it just it doesn't work like that. As I went through life and had opportunities to build companies and do some things, it was interesting because money wasn't the correlating factor to happiness. It wasn't how much money I had. It was really what I was doing with my time. And as that started to click, that really became a really powerful thing. And we all know people that have a lot of money that aren't happy and people that don't have very much money that are really happy. Our time is our most valuable currency. But problems arise when we start making money just for the sake of making money. And we wind up waiting. We just wait and we until we have more money or we get that raise or we buy this thing before we start actually doing the things that we really want to or that really matter. And <clears throat> once we turn it around and we start focusing on the experiences, we start to realize that the experiences that we can create with our time create lifelong memories. And those investments of our time, those give us value that we never lose. We can always lose our job or you know, wind up <clears throat> out of money, but the experiences and the memories we have, those never fade. We have those forever. Those are like forever investments. And as we start to really lean into that, we start to realize like the value proposition between experiences and things is just weighted incorrectly. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be like some big bucket list thing that like when we say the word experience, that doesn't mean like I'm going to climb Kilimanjaro or something. <laughs> you know, Like it's just the little things that are so important. For example, yesterday I was like walking my dog on the beach and I was thinking about 
time is like my greatest currency and how if I was on my deathbed, like how much would I pay at that moment to go back to this experience? Just as simple, like having my dog on the beach. And the answer is I would pay everything that I had to go back to that moment. So I should be like fully in this moment and fully like being grateful for this moment. And I think that's a lot of the problems in the world are a lot of things that you're just trying to get through the day and trying to like get to the next day, but you're forgetting that today is actually Mm -hmm. all we have. Well, you both said that time is our greatest currency, and I want to drill down on that, but I'm wondering what you would say to listeners who have, for every single moment of their lives, defined wealth in terms of that number in their bank account. What is step one for them for unlearning what capitalism has taught them, that amassing money is the key to a rich life. How do they transition to thinking about time as the currency that they should be focusing on? Joe, I know you said with your father that important truth hit you as a teenager, right? It was in your face with his illness. However, what would you say to everybody else listening who didn't have such a stark moment of truth and It just seems to me that transitioning from a life of amassing wealth to a life of amassing experiences, that's a profound shift in the way we look at living and life. And so what's step one for embarking on that transition? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a really great question. You don't have to choose between the two. The two are connected. The value, I wouldn't have been able to start a company at all or meet Bridget or go on this crazy journey that we've had or do most of the things I've done in my life if I hadn't started having other experiences because those experiences create value. So as you start fulfilling your goals and your dreams, you start creating opportunities that you wouldn't have had before uh, and wouldn't have known existed. So they're interconnected and studies show that too pretty clearly that our experiences directly relate to happiness and success in a lot of ways in relationships and our careers and our communities and business. So they don't have to be, you know, completely separated. But the, the lesson I think to be learned is if you envision the end of your life, and again, this isn't to be morbid, this is actually to be um, inspirational. If you picture your eulogy at your funeral, maybe you're picturing yourself at home and peacefully resting in bed or in a hospital, whatever it is, you're not going to want to look at your bank statement one more time. You're going to want to run through that highlight reel of what mattered in your life, of the people you connected with because you shared experiences with, of the things you did that you said you wanted to do that left that lasting memory. That's what you're going to care about. And again, what's really interesting is that people do seem to know this. We ran a study of over 20,000 people and literally almost zero people when we asked what the most valuable thing in their life was said something of financial nature. Like everyone said something like, Oh, backpacking with friends or this trip I took or getting married in Hawaii or when I became a chef or all of these personal experiences. So we know it, we just don't act it. And that's the problem. That's the disconnect. Yeah. I think another interesting part about the study is that we asked the same 20,000 people, what their biggest regret in life so far was. And this points to the monetary question as well, because nobody said, oh, I wish I made more money. I wish I bought that cool car. It was all very attainable 
things that didn't cost a lot of money. So people said things like, I always wanted to take my son to the next state over to show him like where I grew up. Or I wanted to learn Japanese so I could speak to my parents and learn more about my family history. Or a lot of things were like, I wish I would have just learned a song on guitar, but I never got around to it. And so all of those things are very cheap or free. <laughs> so a lot of these regrets can just be avoided by planning things and like putting things on your calendar, even if it is like learning Japanese, for example, put it in your calendar, like today, I'm going to study for 15 minutes tomorrow, I'm going to do that for 15 minutes. And the same can go for anything that you want to learn or anything that you want to plan. Most of these people could have avoided their regrets by just planning. And the number one reason why they gave us that they didn't do the things they wanted to do was that they just quote, never got around to it. Yeah. And thinking of it as the wealth metaphor, because as Bridget just said, the number one thing is they never got around to it. That's because people thought that their time was endless. They thought they would have more time. They just assume they'll always have more time. And that's where people get into trouble, right? Like with your bank account, you can actually see it going up and down, but people just don't have that association with their time. So they have this misconception that there'll always be more time. So it's always, oh, I'll wait till I get promoted or till the kids are older or till I retire or till I do any of those things. And then suddenly it's just too late. Well, I learned a new word by reading your book, neophilia, which by the way, for listeners who nobody knows what that means, I didn't know what it means. It is the openness to new experiences. There is indeed a connection between neophilia and a longer lifespan. So if we're open to new experiences, we may indeed live longer. And yet, so many of us are trapped in lives that we didn't envision for ourselves. You mentioned that we don't get around to it. We don't prioritize time. What about fear, though? Fear and excuses and knowing that time is finite and just being afraid to do something different. I know, Just let's just be vulnerable for a minute. Like When I get down and dirty and drill down why I'm not doing this thing that I want to do, whatever it is, it almost always comes down to fear. I'm scared for whatever reason. And then I make up excuses to cover up the fact that I'm scared. What would you say to me and my fellow listeners who are justifiably scared to do something scary? What advice would you give? First of all, you are not alone. <laughs> Literally every single person is scared. That was actually the number two reason people gave us like the reasons why they weren't going after the things that they wanted to do. Number two was fear. So it's very common. There's actually a story in the book about how I was terrified to do any public speaking. And then once we started building our company, Listen, I started getting these like inquiries about, can you speak at my event? Can you be on this panel? And I would always make up an excuse. I was always like, no, I can't. I have whatever. And every single time I had like some excuse. And it was just total BS because really it was just me being scared. And then this one time I had this incredible opportunity to speak at uh, the Ace Hotel downtown in LA with Richard Branson. And I loved Richard Branson. I just thought he was so cool. And he really embodied like the spirit of experiences. So I was like, I have to do this. I don't care if I'm scared. I'm going to figure out a way to do it. 
afterward, what happened is that I sat down with Richard Branson and I told him how terrified I was. And I was just very real with him. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't even believe I just did that. That was like the craziest thing I've ever done because I'm terrified of public speaking. And he literally told me that he was also terrified of public speaking and that he just like like blacks out when he does it. And he just tries to imagine he's speaking to one of his friends versus an entire auditorium of people. But I give that example because it's literally every single person. Like it doesn't matter if you're super successful, super famous, whatever. Everybody has fears and that's just how it is. So I think for anyone that's like afraid of something, we have a great exercise in the book that's like picking out one specific fear. Maybe your fear is traveling to a new country or like taking a new job or like trying a new career, for example. We try to ask people like to focus on that fear and answer some questions and that will help you get past it. So what negative things might happen if you do this thing that you're afraid of? And what would be so bad about that? What would it mean about you if your fear came true? Be really introspective with this stuff and it will really help you. Like, What does this tell you about your own safety or worth or competence or lovability even? And like, where did you learn how to believe this about yourself? And then what would you do if you believed something different about yourself? And I love that because I just think it helps people think through, like, why do you have this fear? Because every fear is rooted in something, right? It just doesn't come to you for no reason. For me speaking, I always thought, oh, I'm like a fraud. <laughs> like, why would anyone want to listen to me speak? Yeah, we, we have such a disconnect between what's the worst thing that could happen and what's the best thing that could happen yes. and the value of those two things. If everyone could really stop and analyze their fears, you'd realize that the positives, the potential greatly outweighs any negative. But in our heads, we build up that excuse, that, that wall, because we're afraid and we don't want to feel that fear. Well, we're going to take our sponsor break, but when we come back, I want to talk about the how. So you've convinced me. I need to be focusing more on experiences, but how do I do that when the day-to-day -day life, the grind is <laughs> keeping me down? We'll get there after a quick sponsor break. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet Home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, Home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven collection. They use many sustainable materials without compromising on style. And here's the best part. Home Threads always has the best value. It was time. After nine years of living in our home, it was time to replace our outdoor furniture. And my husband and I, we went to Home Threads. We have a Home Threads patio umbrella and a new bench. And oh my goodness, we are so in love. Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items and yet somehow 
we still have nothing to wear. Well, upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch. They wear better than the cashmere sweaters that are double their price. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash sustainable podcast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sustainable podcast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. One more time, quince.com slash sustainable podcast. And we're back. Today I'm speaking with Bridget Hilton and Joe Huff. They are the authors of the brand new book that's out this week. It is titled Experiential Billionaire, Build a Life Rich in Experiences and Die with No Regrets. Now, I read your book and you guys have done a lot of really cool stuff. So really quick, in maybe 30 words or less, Joe, we'll start with you. What has been the single most impactful experience you've had go? (laughs) That's a loaded question. (laughs) And I've used up 10 words saying that. Yeah, for me, it's not a bucket list thing. Um, My wife actually just beat cancer and uh, the experience of sitting with her the last day of her chemotherapy was like a very meaningful experience. And it also was a very powerful experience because after that, we we didn't change our lives. We basically were already doing all the things we wanted to do. And that gave me a lot of deep personal, just proof that this way of life really makes a difference. And it matters. If you think about what you really want and you do those things, you don't have to change everything when you have a near-death experience. So I would say that's my most meaningful one. I don't recommend that for other people. So I'll throw out a secondary one. I think going to Africa and doing the Maasai Mara on safari was a very powerful experience also in a lot of ways. So if if people are looking for a big bucket list item, we can help you try to plan that. If you go through the book, there's a load of great tools. Sorry, I went way over. I got disqualified. <laughs> that was at least 31 words. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever answered a question in 30 words or less. (laughs) For me, it's also not a bucket list item. It's I had a very intense mental health crisis in 2020. And that was the most valuable experience of my life because it really taught me how to deal with life and how to be grateful for just the little things. And every single day I wake up that I'm happy. I'm like, I'm beyond grateful for that. And it's funny in our survey, we asked people what the most valuable experience of their life was. And a third of them said a negative experience because of those same reasons. So it doesn't always have to be big travel experience to be the most valuable thing. But if I was to choose maybe an experience that was travel related, I would say probably seeing the Northern Lights in Iceland. I love nature and that was probably the coolest thing I've ever seen. Well, you both are hitting, again, the same point, which is that a health crisis, a scare perhaps, can really shake us awake. Um, You guys are already awake, clearly. But for the rest of us who haven't had a personal health scare or a health scare of somebody close to them, that's where I want to spend the rest of our time is how can we shake ourselves awake 
to what really matters in life without, again, some potential catastrophe. Your book has an awful lot of ways that we can not only be shook and awake, but also stay awake and stay accountable, I would say. Let's talk about some of them. The most powerful visual, I think, that is in your book is the memento mori visual. I guess that's what I'll call it, graphic. Um, can you talk us through it, like explain what it is and how you use it in your days? Sure. So this is actually something I look at every single day. The memento mori chart meet is 76 boxes, which is the average American lifespan. It's actually 74 in men and 78 in women which is a lot lower than what people think. Like we all imagine ourselves, maybe not everyone, but I certainly did, dying peacefully at 100 in my bed. And that's just not realistic. I hope that happens for you, but um, <laughs> that's not actually what happens to most people. So seeing 76 boxes in front of you and ticking off how many you've lived is so valuable. Um, this year for me especially, so I turned 38 this year. And that's exactly halfway through the 76 boxes. So when I look at this every single day, I'm like, oh my God, I'm over halfway through the average lifespan. I need to do what I want to do now and not wait because I don't know how much time I have left. And if I'm average, then I only have less than half left. So it's jarring, but at the same time, it really does remind you to do the things that you want to do now. Yeah, the the tools are creating urgency. You know, if we had to sum up the book, that was a really great question you asked, because if we had to sum up the book in a sentence, it's we're trying to give people the urgency and direction that you would get from a near-death experience minus the near-death experience. <laughs> That's the goal. There's some tools like the one Bridget mentioned, and you just mentioned the Memento Mori calendar and some other exercises that we run through so that you can start to realize that you have to start planning things that you, know, you need to get that urgency. And then the visualization part, I think, is it's baked into that. Once you start thinking of how much time you have left, then you can really start to think about what would I regret the most not doing in my time? And then when you see that picture start to form, it becomes a lot easier to start mapping out your life, actually, because then you're like, okay, wait a minute, I see some patterns here. There's a bunch of things that I have listed that I know I'm going to care deeply about if I don't do, I better start putting those together. And that's a big part of the first step of the getting on that path to becoming, quote unquote, experientially wealthy. Well, it's interesting that I'm talking to you at this moment in my life, personally, because just last week, my husband said, I think we need to have a partner meeting. And I'm like, oh, I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> and he said, I think we need to talk about our 10-year plan. So just 10 years, not, you know, 30 years, 10 years. Like, what do we want to do and accomplish in the next 10 years? Because our oldest daughter is nine. We have about 10 more years, nine if we're doing real math, but nine years left before she's off and out of the house. So what do we want our lives to look like? And when he said we need to have this meeting, I didn't have much to say. And I'm embarrassed about that. And I, again, drilled down, why am I not thinking about the future and how to extract the most from this time? The answer I came to as to why I am not thinking <laughs> 10 years into the future is that I'm just so focused hyper-focused, I would say, on the day-to-day -day weeds, right? I'm so caught up in 
the daily grind, I guess I would say, that I have perhaps not lost, but it has diminished. The weeds have diminished my ability to dream and imagine. You have the treasure map exercise in your book that was really powerful to me as I prepared myself for our second partner meeting because the first one was such an epic fail. Joe, can you walk us through the treasure map exercise? Sure, sure. The way that the treasure map exercise works is we have people sit and really visualize, pretend that you just got a call from your doctor and it's not good. You should take a seat because they just found out that you've got a year left to live and start getting yourself, your life in order. Now you really picture that and then write down the 10 things, at least 10 things, but 10 things that you must do before the end of that year. Um, and that's really powerful again in showing like, okay, those things really matter. And then we take another step in that exercise and do the same thing. Okay. The doctor called back. He's a terrible doctor. Absolutely botched it. Got the test results, looked at him again. You only have 30 days to live update. Let's do a new list. Things you can actually do in 30 days that you know, you'd want to do, do that list. And then again, we follow that with one more exercise. This doctor is getting fired, malpractice, no question. But he calls again, sorry, you've got 24 hours left to live. What are five things you're going to do in 24 hours? Now, once you have all those lists written down, you look at those lists. And the first thing we do is we say, put an asterisk next to all of the things that you're actively working on now. And it's alarming because if you're like most people in our survey, most people, literally all of those things, all three of those lists, people aren't working on any of the things that they absolutely knew that they would want to do before they died, whether it was in a year or a month or a day. They're not, there's no plan. It's not on their to-do list, not on their calendar. And that's where we get in trouble again, because we just assume that those things are going to somehow happen on their own. And we put them in this, what we call our someday calendar. But the sad fact is someday is not a day on the calendar. So if you're just saying you're going to do it someday, you're never going to get around to it. So that, that exercise is really powerful for that first step of like seeing how far off you are from what you want your life to look like, or you want to accomplish. And the second part of that, that's really helpful and interesting is the theme. Like Bridget said, we're both very big fans of nature. So if you look at my treasure map, there's a lot of things on it that involve being outside or doing things or going places. So if your treasure map looks like that, but you're currently spending 95% of your time in a cubicle and at home and indoors, and or you live in a city or an environment that doesn't you know, allow for that, those are big red flags. Like, wait a minute, how did I wind up in a 12th floor apartment, if I want to go for walks and hikes every day, like those are the kind of things that you start to look at and go, wait, I need to like reassess and make changes and figure out new choices. Yeah. It's funny that exercise has really helped me personally do some huge things. Joe mentioned like nature is such a big part of my life. And I moved to nature a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, and it's completely changed my life. It's a really powerful exercise. And I really hope that everyone can, can do it and yeah. see what's important. And what you said about your meeting with your husband, that gave me chills. And I just, I hate hearing that, but I also love it because I know that you're going to get so much value out of this. And that makes me so happy. Yeah. It's also a bit contradictory too. I, I just want to point out that we, everyone needs to accept and acknowledge that I have kids also, by the way, I have a, a 18 month and a uh, almost four year old now. And 
I think about that math and that's where the calendar comes into play again. When you look at the calendar, it's the math of how many more summers are there? How many more times am I going to do this thing before my kids move out or when my parents are too old, et cetera. But the contradictory aspect of it is we need to think about seizing the day, quote unquote, living in the moment, doing things now. So that urgency to do things now, yet we also still need to do certain things that require long-term planning. So there's a balance. And again, in the book, we go through that in, in detail about the balance of making sure you're investing in all of those small, incredible, attainable, achievable, daily experiences that are going to be meaningful versus all of the ones that take your time away that aren't meaningful while you're on your way to those bigger long-term goals, like whether it's a, a wedding or a career or some big trip that might take a long time to plan, you have to find that balance. And I think that's something that people miss a lot. So again, it's so interesting to me as the host of this podcast, guests fall into my lap at the precise moment that I need to talk to them. And that's so interesting you bring that up because my nine-year-old, again, recently she said that she would love to see all 50 states. And my husband and I thought we could do that in the next nine years. It's going to take significant planning <laughs> and significant savings of the finances, but we could do that. So that's like a big idea. But then on the other hand, if we're going back to the treasure map exercise, which I, by the way, did, I took a piece of paper, folded in thirds, and I did it. And if without going through all the things that were on my treasure map, just going to the one thing that was in my, I only have 24 hours left to live column. And that was just snuggle with my daughters, snuggle with my daughters. I would love to have like a big family snuggle fest in my bed. <laughs> Yet, how many nights do I put them to bed and they want to have extra snuggles and I say, no, no, it's bedtime. Got to go to bed. Got to go to bed. And I like shut off the light and I extract my arm from their grip and I leave. And I say all that to say that we have this treasure map, but in the weeds, in the day to day, the treasure map can get forgotten. And so, Joe, I'll give you this last question. With regard to the big trips that require planning and with regard to the small moments of beauty in the day-to-day, -day, how can we keep ourselves accountable to that treasure map, to what we wrote on our own treasure maps? How can we steer the course? Yeah, that's a great question. Also, it's easy to put something on to your, to your map or even on your calendar and think, Oh, there we, I did it. I'm done now. <laughs> you, know, so you really have to break things down into actionable steps and the accountability we, we like to call it. We use nudges, which are just basically, it's like your, if again, if you want to use a financial metaphor, it'd be like the alert you get, the reminders, your account's slow or you need to make this payment or you need to do this thing where we need to just make it as frictionless as possible to do the things we said we want to do. And whether it's, for instance, a reminder for you to take advantage of snuggling with your kids and you need to write that we put, I personally have my treasure map posted in my bathroom so I can see it every day. So when you see it, and by the way, I rewrite it frequently just because there's times that I think maybe something needs to change or also just because I want to write it down because there's power in writing things out. Your brain encodes it deeper. But I see that. And then that way, if it's something like I want to take my son skateboarding twice a week and it's the third day 
of the week already and I haven't done it. And there's other things that definitely are more than willing to steal my time and fill my time up. I, I stop and go, Oh no, this is something I know is a priority. I said it, I wrote it down. I'm going to do it. So that's a nudge to do something like that. That's not necessarily, it's just an act, but other things, for instance, if you say you want to work out or you want to eat better, or you want to make a special meal for the first time or learn how to cook something, setting yourself up for success, like by preparing for it, setting out, like if you're going to make pasta for the first time, having the flour and the yeast out on the flour and the eggs, I mean, out on the counter, if you're going to go to the gym, having your workout clothes in the morning set there, telling someone that can be your accountability partner, hey, this is something that I want to do. This is what I'm going to do this month or this year, or this week, and asking them, hey, will you check in with me on this? Because there's a little bit of, it, it takes more than just announcing it to the world. Hey, I'm going to do this thing. And then you feel like, oh, I said it, that means I'm going to do it. And everybody knows I'm going to do it. Surprisingly, it's still easy to just shirk off and not do those things. But if you tell someone specifically, that's really helpful for them to like actually lean in and go, hey, I'm checking in. Where are you? So just helping keep moving, pushing things forward. I think that those are really big, powerful ways to to make sure to keep people um, on track. And then I guess the, the big one really is really your calendar. Your calendar is the biggest dead giveaway too. If you look at your calendar and it's full, but it's full of stuff that you don't care about. If it's full of do my taxes, pay my bills, go do that. Yeah, we all have to do that stuff. And it feels good to check boxes on a to-do list. Sure. But if you look at your calendar and it doesn't have any of the things that mean something to you, you're doing that wrong, right? Your experiences aren't just wants, they are needs. These are the things that are going to be the most meaningful things in your life later and even now, of course. So you need to make sure you look at your calendar and it reflects what you want your future to look like. And if it doesn't, that's the first line of defense. Let's start putting those things in. And for the big picture things, we like to say, um, there's a way to link, you know, your low ROI to your high ROI. And we use a great example in the book about like taking a trip to Italy. That was, by the way, a huge, it was very high on the list of people's lifetime goals was to go somewhere. Um, Italy being even specifically one of the top places to go on a trip and travel and eat, et cetera. If you want to do that, and that's going to take a long time, you can still plan all kinds of fun things along the way. Like you can start download a Duolingo and start learning Italian every day. You can learn how to make some Italian food at home, like pizza and pasta. You can go to different Italian restaurants and learn how to you know, speak a little language or at least read a menu, which is helpful and figure out where the foods you like are from, the wines you like, the regions, et cetera. So you're building like these smaller, lower ROI experiences into this bigger ticket experience so that when you then achieve that goal later, it has more value. But along the way, you had steps that you could take now because you can't always go, for instance, on your treasure map, if you wrote, go to Italy, and then you look you might not be able to write that on your calendar today. You can write plan a trip to Italy, but you might not know exactly when you're going to be able to do it. But you can write plan a trip to Italy, do research on this day, go to this Italian restaurant, make pasta. Like Those are things you can put on your calendar. So being able to do the small steps along the way, I think, is is a way we really try to help people see how to be accountable. Well, Joe and Bridget, your book, congratulations. It's out now, titled one more time, Experiential Billionaire. 
build a life rich in experiences, and die with no regrets. Thank you both so much for your time. I learned a lot. I'm going to go into that second partner meeting with something to say, and I have you two to thank. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. I can't wait to hear about your meeting. <laughs> Please <Yeah>. let me. <laughs> yes. Listeners, that's a wrap. Show notes are at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 402. And we do have an eco tip today. It comes from Kim. Kim's eco tip is to stick with positive minimalist messaging for anyone who has maximalist children, like Kim's daughter. Kim wrote to me and she said that the other day she heard her daughter say, this is to donate. And Kim's ears perked up. So she peeked in her daughter's room and she realized that her daughter was playing with Barbies and the Barbie was saying, this is to donate. Next to the Barbie doll, of course, there was a pile of small plastic Barbie toys to donate. So small steps, big impact. Our children are always listening. So stick with that positive, minimalist messaging, even if you feel like it's not getting through. It is. Thank you so much, Kim, for writing to me. Listeners, we will be back tomorrow with headlines where we're discussing the debt that Americans go into in the pursuit of love. Yes, we are. We're also discussing the ways in which extreme heat are cutting our children's recesses short. So I'll see you tomorrow for headlines. Don't miss it. See you then. Reach out if you need me and take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc